G'day everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Mitch Stocker, this is Life in the Peloton and this podcast this year is being brought to you by our proud partner, Rafa. Now ever since Rafa was founded, they're all about trying to make people fall in love with cycling. They do that through their RCC, the Rafa Cycling Club members, the events that they do and the stories they create. That is the motto of Rafa, apart from making fantastic kit, which you hear me talk about all the time. This week on the podcast, we've got a different guest. We've got something a little bit different. Have you ever wondered how those staff, I'm talking about the World Tour staff, I'm talking about the Swaniers, the mechanics, the osteopaths, the chiropractors, how do they actually get in the teams? What is the pathway of getting across there? If you're not a European across there living in Europe, you're an Australian, you're an American, a Kiwi, and you're thinking, how can I actually get across there and work on one of these teams? How does it all happen? Well, this is the podcast for you. I'm sitting back talking with Andy Gerrans. Now, you may have heard that name before. Gerrans, Simon Gerrans, of course. Well, this is Andrew Gerrans, his brother. Now, I had the pleasure of working with Andrew way back when I stagiered with AG2R in 2005, and Andy was also stagiering himself as an osteopath or as a swanier on the team out here at the Herald Sun Tour in Melbourne. And ever since then, we've sort of followed each other's footsteps. Andy went away from the sport for a while, came back into the sport, and then has since been in the sport since 2013 when he rejoined with Green Edge back in those days. Anyway, I'm not going to get too much into the story because we talk about it there. Now, you're going to have to excuse the audio on this one because we were sitting outside at a park. I caught up with Andy when he was back here over the summer and we had a little bit of wind catching in the microphone. So as you know, I'm not always the best recorder out there. So you have to excuse the wind when it pops in and out. But I think it's doable. You've got to listen to this story because this is a really good one. It's a different angle, but I think it's a really interesting angle hearing about the pathway to the world tour as a staff member. We've also got some other exciting news for you too. You may have heard me talk about it last week on Talking Luft. I'm talking about the new cap, the new casquette. Talking Luft is all about style on the bike, cycling lifestyle, the rituals of riding that we love to share and maybe some of those that we don't and especially an ode to, in my opinion, the best era of cycling when style in the peloton was just as important as performance. Now we've dedicated a cap especially to Luft and talking about it and that's what we've created. I hope you like it as much as we did creating it. You may have seen it on our Instagram. It's going to be dropping tomorrow, Thursday. If you want to get in on that, subscribe to lifeinthepeloton.com and you are going to get the first heads up to when it's going to be released. There's only going to be a limited edition. Get across to lifeinthepeloton.com, check it out Etsy store and you will see them there. Guys, that's happening tomorrow. Exciting news. I'm really excited always to put out a fresh cap. Now, guys, without further ado, I bring you Andy Gerrans. Sitting down here today um, with a good friend and an old, well actually we've been together pretty much from the beginning of my career as I started to, you know, go up in cycling, started with ag and I met Andrew Gerrans. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me Mitch, great to be here. Good to have you on board. Um, what I'm going to tackle today is Andrew's a qualified osteopath 
and he's made his way into the world tour and we worked together at Green Edge for five years, um, actually six years really. But we also worked together before that when I stagiaired with Asia 2 r then we did some stuff with Drapak and then you know popped around to his house in Melbourne and we just stayed in contact over these years. So what exactly is an osteopath? Because you know, physio, chiro, what is it? So everyone out there listening, I know some people know already what an osteopath is, pretty common here in Australia, but it's not super common all around the world. Um, well, in my opinion, I could be completely wrong here. Tell us what it is. Yeah, it's an interesting question and, and you'd think it's a really straightforward answer, but it, it really depends on, on where you're based in the world. Um, in every country, there's different, different levels of training, different qualifications, and, and how they treat can be quite different as well. But you know, from an Australian perspective, it's, it's a hands-on musculoskeletal therapy. Um, you know, we're at university for five years. It's a, it's a double degree in Australia. Uh, and we're government registered practitioners here as, as primary care practitioners. So, you know, somebody can come in off the street and say, in a private practice, you know, I've got this injury, I've got this problem, um, you know, what can I do about it? And we're, we're qualified to be able to deal with that, to, to know if it's something that can be treated with hands-on therapy or if they need referral on to, you know, a medical specialist or for further testing. But it's, a, it's um, yeah, hands-on therapy where we're, we're giving advice um, around exercises and, and a lot of lifestyle advice mm. as well, ergonomics and nutrition and, and other factors. But it's, um, you know, we're doing soft tissue work, we're doing stretching, uh, manipulation sometimes mm. if it's needed. And, um, yeah, a big part of that is, is educating the, the individual about their, their injury and, and, or illness and what they can do to, to really help themselves to get better. So um, I'd like to think it's a holistic mm. therapy um, and something where we encompass not just kind of where the problem is, but really trying to identify, uh, you know, what's causing mm. the problem and getting to the kind of root of that. Mm, it's like the it's almost like the best of all all realms, isn't it? I might be a little bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm really interested in is that is there a real stereotypical line to the world tour? And so what I want to talk to Andy about today is that. But before we get there, Andy, I wanted you to just sort of explain where you came from, where you grew up, and what the start of your life was when you you know from school pretty mm-hmm. much yeah um so yeah i grew up in mansfield in, in northeast victoria and uh just a, a pretty typical country sort of upbringing i'd say and uh pretty active lifestyle and playing a lot of sports growing up and uh yeah just really interested in in health and that sort of active lifestyle and my mum was a nurse at the local hospital so always following that sort of health and, and medical side of things so that sort of that probably started my interest in in you know uh, hands-on therapy and, and osteopathy and, and how i ended up in into studying osteo so finished school and, and went to uh to study in melbourne and um yeah sort of throughout the years at, at university i would um simon would come back uh each year from from racing in europe and he'd say you know can you can you do anything useful yet you know can you, <laughs> <laughs> what can i get out of you and can i, I said, get you a know, free treatment yeah, yeah basically yeah so he'd come back over the summer holidays or the sort of european off season and uh, you know, the first year I said, well, you know, probably not. I can assess you, but I probably can't treat you yet. And uh, by the end of the second year, I was capable at doing some soft tissue work and, and a bit of uh, basic sort of treatment. And uh, yeah, my first my first experience working in um, in in racing, I guess in um, in the sport was uh, 2005, and that's where where you came into it. Our first mm. meeting, and and that was the Sun Tour. He was um, putting together a team 
with AG2R as a bit of a composite team with a couple of European riders and um, you know Australian staff and obviously yourself and, and a couple of other young Australian riders and um, it was really a, it was a volunteer role and I sort of you sort of learn you have to pitch in and help out in any way you can it was primarily doing massage at the end of the stage but you know before the stage you making bottles and sandwiches and you're driving to feed zones and all that sort of stuff. Where so were you in your study then? Was that sort of at the end? That or? was end of third year. So it's a oh. five year course and I was sort of basically halfway through. So Was that know. a pretty big opportunity as a say studying osteopath to go away and work with a pro team, whether that would be a football team, AF, uh, AFL, whatever it is, you were cycling at a pretty elite level. Yeah. Within your sort of classmates, we're like, wow, that's a good opportunity, mate. Yeah, that, that was the case at the time. I probably didn't appreciate it at the time just oh. because, you know, you're working with your brother and some of, the, some of his teammates and my classmates were all pretty envious that I got to travel mm. a week on the road and travel around Victoria working with these, you know, elite athletes. But, um, yeah. Was it a good of, experience that you can remember back to? Yeah, it was. And it's the first time working in that environment. So you're mm. kind of taking away all the, the high points from it. And it's a busy week, as you know. But, um, yeah, really good experience and, and learnt a lot from it. And um, great way to make some connections with um, some other people involved in the sport as well. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So, and then from there, like... As you were sort of moving through, was it then starting to set up, look, Simon, Simon Gerrans, your brother, everyone knows his name, mm -hmm. he's in cycling, he's starting to really tap into his career, you just did a little stagiaire actually, same yeah. as I did with AG2R, were you like, oh actually, if I graduate here a couple of years away, this could be a good job for me in the future? Yeah, potentially, and I think it sort of, it opened some doors already after doing that race, um, I was starting my master's degree the next year. Um, and one of my supervisors suggested a study for me, which was quite unique at the time, particularly in osteopathy. It was doing some performance testing of a, of a new design of Bicycle Hub. Mm. Um, so really outside of the scope of, of normal osteo masters, but he could see that I'd worked in cycling and had an interest in that area. So um, already my research degree kind of was leaning down that, that pathway. So um, yeah, the following year in 2006, um, I got asked back with uh, Draypack actually yeah. and I did the Sun Tour. I'm not sure if you did it that year in 2006. I think so, yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah. Um, so yeah, again, back to the Sun Tour. Um, Simon wasn't involved obviously in that team at the time and, and sort of opened some doors with other people and, and creating those networks and I think that's a really important part of, of sort of getting into the industry and, and the following year I did uh, Tour of South Korea with Draypack again with a different group of riders and staff and so really starting to, well, trying to get my name out there a little bit in the sport. Um, did you understand though at that point there and you know obviously you couldn't foresee what was going to happen now let's say that's actually almost like 15 years ago yeah um oh this is the right step i need to make network here i need to you know yeah i guess it's probably just like that in any type of job scenario you need a network you need to get experience you need to understand the lay of the land um but now when you're looking back on it you think like you just said then it was actually probably a pretty good step up that most sort of people in the industry would love to have that opportunity yeah exactly but I, I think at the same time you need to um, need to look for those opportunities and make mm. the most of them when they come along um, you need to sort of put yourself out there and and take some risks and, and really try and use um, use those networks to your advantage if you're going to try and get your foot in the door is it it's a pretty hard industry to get into and and I think you really need to put yourself out there if you're going to sort of have a go at it the pro cycling industry you mean yeah exactly yeah hundred yeah, percent yeah Okay, so then at this point there, you've been working with Draftback and you're thinking, okay, well, I'm assuming you're thinking, yeah, right, let's go, let's go overseas, you know, that's the, the next step, you know, let's get into a team and let's go from there. I don't know, is that what you think as a staff member? Because as a rider, that's what you think. 
Uh, I, was, I was, wasn't locked into where I was going with my career once I finished university. I actually had a, to be honest, had a job lined up in, mm. in uh, Hamilton Island in northern Queensland. Did you? Uh, and as it turned out, my master's project took a year longer and... and I was, what was your master's? Oh, the, that's right, the, yeah. Working on the, uh, yeah. the, the new wheel. So, um, yeah, it sort of got a little bit delayed and, and put my, uh, my plans off by, for, by 12 months or so. so um, come to the start of 2009, Simon was actually starting with Cervelo Test Team and they were kind of building the team and looking for staff. Um, they were looking for support riders, uh, support staff in, in Monaco and he said, uh, you know, I've got a group of guys here and a lot of those guys I'd worked with over the pre-seasons in Melbourne and, mm. and uh, doing some massage work so I knew some of the riders there. And, uh, it was like Jez Hunt. Yeah, Jez Hunt and Cookie and uh, Matt Wilson and oh, guys yeah. like that, uh, Mark Renshaw, those kind of guys. Um, that I'd worked with previously and um, yeah they were they were keen to have me on board over there and to look after them when they're training and also uh, potentially have a foot in the door with the mm. team so um, I sort of bit the bullet and and um, packed up and moved to, to Monaco and rented a not in Monaco um, but basically across the road and uh, moved there and, and started working with the guys and I had a, a job interview with uh, one of the, the medical doctors on the team and they gave me an opportunity to mm. do a couple of races with them in early 2009 um, so yeah that was you know that was my first experience at a world tour level in Europe uh, and it was a great experience uh, but I kind of got to the point by around mid-year they'd, they'd offer me a position full-time for the following year based in Switzerland living in Basel uh, two-year contract and and I it actually it scared me a little bit because mm. I, I didn't quite know what I was in for at the time and and you know I just had this vision of being stuck in a little apartment and doing airport runs and living out of a service course or something like that so. which is actually the reality of what it is yeah exactly. and you could already envision that six months in you're like mm. oh, I'm starting to get the lay of the land here yeah I can quickly get pigeonholed into something it looks glamorous I'm working on this team but actually if you see the reality I'm living in like you said in Basel yeah doing airport runs you yeah. know yeah, and uh, yeah, it wasn't. It didn't sit right with me at the mm. time, and I, I enjoyed the the experience and the races I had. But I was also I was in my graduate year at uni, so I didn't. I was going. I was becoming very niche in my in my skill set, and and I kind of wanted to solidify the training that I'd had at university. So I made the decision to go back to Australia at the end of that year. Um, had a couple of months travel before I before I went back, um, and in that time, I kind of made the decision to set up my own practice back in uh, back in Mansfield. Actually, what was the travel you did? Uh, so I had my had my flight booked for October to go back, and, and that flight was booked at the start of the year. I had a couple of months left, and and a little bit of cash, but not a lot. So I, I started looking at you know the the way I could maximise the money I had <laughs> left, how I could travel the best part of Europe on a on a shoestring budget. And so I I punched into Google at the time long distance hiking, <laughs> and the Camino de Santiago came up. <laughs> and uh, had a good look into it. And actually the starting point in France was, you know, a, tr a couple of train rides from, from Monaco or Nice. And uh, so I made the, made the call to uh, get my backpack and jump on a train and, and, you know, get my way to the middle of France and start start the Camino. So that was, um, you know, a six week trip altogether, traveling across France and, and Spain, ending up in. What was the real, like, because a lot of people do the Camino as a bit of a soul search or, you know, um, sometimes it's a bit spiritual as well. It can be also a bit religious. Um, the Camino de Santiago, anyone doesn't know, it's... Well, maybe you explain exactly what the trip is. Yeah, it's a pilgrimage at the end yeah. of the day. It's a, yeah, a Catholic pilgrimage. And, um, yeah, I didn't do it for that for that reason, but it was, you know, obviously a famous... Probably the most famous um, hiking trail or, or pilgrimage in Europe. So that was probably the first thing that popped up on Google when I typed in, you know, long-distance hike. So 
um, it was a pretty easy route to follow. There was, you know, markers along the way and lots of towns to stop in, and it was an easy, it was an easy trip. But um, and I hadn't intended it on being a, you know, a soul-searching trip. I was just kind of looking to see some some more of Europe and mm. not have to pay for public transport. So we well, uh, see quite a lot of the north of Spain. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I uh, I did the first part hiking and and camping, just kind of wild camping and and uh, you know cooking my own meals and that sort of thing and. At a, at a point after about three weeks in and about 500 k's I'd, I'd injured my foot so I sent all my camping gear home and bought a mountain bike from Decathlon and, and did the rest of the way across Spain on the mountain bike so yeah it was a good trip in the end yeah and then you decided to come back you're like okay what did what did yeah well not anyone but like say your brother or the people you're working with in in Monaco and even Cervelo themselves think about you stepping away from that opportunity and then going you know what I just want to go back and you had an idea then I want to go back to my hometown. I think that's right for me. I want to do pretty much what I guess a lot of people graduating from university do, set up their own practice and, and get going in a somewhat, inverted commas, a normal way. Yeah, I think I think the guys that I was working with at the time knew that you know the Monaco, Monaco sort of lifestyle didn't really sit well with me and I couldn't see myself settling down there for a long term anyway. So, what is the Monaco lifestyle if people don't know that? Uh, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a wealthy, exclusive place to live. Um, you know, lifestyle of the rich and the famous, and you know, when you're earning, you know, an average wage, there's no, it sort of limits your ability to do things mm. and um, you know, and to fit into that sort of environment. So, that, um, and that's not sort of who I am, and and you know, I like the outdoors and mm. the kind of down to earth sort of lifestyle so uh yeah didn't you know it was it was a great experience a great place to travel and some great people there but um not somewhere i saw myself living long term mm. um yeah so i you know made the decision to set up my practice in, in mansfield and you know it's probably a comfortable place to go and i knew there was a, a really big gap in the market at that time so um it was uh you know it was going from zero to fully booked in a really short space of time and and it uh yeah it was a busy few years in practice that's for sure you come back and you're like okay you found a spot you started settling back down were there any moments there along that period then you're settling back into normal life you're like normal life or i guess compared to what you'd done the years before what when was the sort of the penny drop where you're like you know what this isn't what it's cracked up to be. Well, this is not for me. You know, because from what I understand, tell me a little bit about your practice and, mm -hmm. your, and your practice life there. Yeah, so I set up in uh, set up in November and within about a month, uh, I had a full list of patients. I had sort of 60 patients booked in the week before Christmas. And Isn't I thought, that the dream though? That's the dream for any osteo setting up a practice, yeah. You know, they, they said it could be 12 months before you're running at a profit in your business and um, after about three weeks, I thought, I don't know what they're talking about here. This is ridiculous. So. Is that the Garen's name, is it? Certainly a Your local... old man's going around like, you better get in there, yeah, support my yeah. son. Yeah, yeah, just going, doing the rounds in the uh, local supermarket, <laughs> going, get down there, mate. Um, yeah, no, for sure, having that local connection made a big, big influence. And there was a lot of people that came in and like, oh, I work with your mum, or I, you know, I went to school with mm. this person and that person. And knowing a lot of people and just being a local, for sure that word of mouth is really powerful in a town like Mansfield so yeah that worked to my advantage good sure. and bad as soon as you do yeah, something bad exactly then, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 um but uh no it was um yeah my intention was to really set up multiple practices in in northeast Victoria and, mm. and the reality was it was so hard to get osteopaths to country Victoria mm. to work and and I found myself limited in at the end of the day in Mansfield and I thought well after a couple of years, I thought if I'm sort of stuck to this and, and really struggling to grow my business and to expand it, then do I want to do this for the rest of my life? So that's mm. where I started to sort of, you know, 
look elsewhere and look back to Europe and, and to, to go back to doing some travel again. So How was, old were you then? Uh, so I finished I finished up in 2013, so I was 29. So I was quite young when I set up. Mm. I was probably 26 when I set up my practice. Um, and yeah, 29 uh, when, I, when I sold it and decided to up and travel again. <laughs> Is the practice still there now? Yeah, it was taken over by another osteopath who was, who was sort of making a tree change and, and uh, he took over my list of patients and, and carried on from there. So yeah, it is, oh. yeah. So tell me then, you were like, okay, I just need to go and travel. You weren't just going, I need to get back to the cycling. That was actually the ticket. Or were you romanticizing about that little bit of time you had? Or was it just like, oh, I think Europe could be cool. How had all Europe come about again? Uh, actually, I hadn't hadn't considered working in, in Europe again. I'd, I'd booked a trip to go to Nepal. I spent, mm. my, so my, my grand plan was to spend a bit of time in Nepal trekking and, and traveling around. Uh, I wanted to go to Europe to visit Simon and he had a couple of young kids uh, at the time. I wanted to see them and spend some time with them. Then my intention was to actually get a, a touring bike and travel through Eastern Europe for six months for the summer. And, and, uh, and I'd planned to move my life to Canada, to be honest. Mm. So it was, a, it was a really unique way I, I came back into it. Um, I spent my time in Nepal and, and got to Monaco around June. Uh, it was obviously the build-up for the Tour de France that year. And, and while I was staying with Simon, he said, "You know, could you could you help me out with some treatments in the weeks leading up to the tour?" And uh, was, was he was he happy with your treatments along the way? Like, were you were you learnt, not necessarily Simon per se, mm -hmm. but working with these pro athletes? Were you understanding then? Oh, actually, I am pretty good. You know, like these guys are at the top level; they're getting a lot of treatment because. I guess people in a country town, mm -hmm. not to be disrespectful, may not know any different. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like you being overseas, these these cyclists, and I know myself, you're getting a lot of treatment from a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. And if they're coming back to you and your brother's saying, hey, we need you involved, we understanding that, oh, I might actually be okay at this. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's probably something I didn't appreciate at the time because it's, you know, it's a family member that's asking you and you yeah. just assume that, okay, you're his brother, he's going to want to see you for treatment. But, you know, looking back, he's, he's such a professional Oh, yeah, he wouldn't know athlete. why. If I wasn't, you know, doing something effective in a treatment, then he would have easily just chopped me and found somebody else. So. Oh, he would have just told you. He <laughs> yeah. would have told you. me straight up, yeah. 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 Um, but Which I think, is good, yeah, you know? Yeah, no, it's exactly to have that honest feedback. But, you know, I'd had that experience, you know, from, from the uni days and, and massaging riders and I was working with, you know, uh, some young guys coming up and some triathletes doing regular massage and treatments throughout uni. So I sort of had a lot of hands-on experience before, you know, coming straight back mm. into it in, well, 2013 at that point. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, you have to be happy with what I'm doing to, to be able to say... You know, do you want to help us out at the Tour de France? We're looking for an osteo to to fill that void, and and um, so you know that's that was my kind of foot in the door. Back what with year the was team. this? This is 2013. Oh, so back yeah. with then that's with Mitchelton. Oh, with Green Edge. Green Edge. This yeah. was the second year with Green Edge. So um, yeah, so I was there in Monaco in June, and he said, look, we're, the, the riders are really looking to have an osteo at the Tour. Would you be able to you know volunteer? And I was effectively a backpacker at that point. Mm. I said, yeah, I can you know travel around France for a month and. Um, it was pretty unique circumstances because, you know, the, the hotels are obviously fully booked months in advance and, you know, to add an extra staff member in at that point was quite complicated. So, you know, there were days where, you know, I would come in, do some treatments, maybe stay a night and then, you know, they didn't have somewhere for me to stay for a couple of stages. So I'd, you know, get on a bus and meet them three or four days later and, <laughs> and come back in and I was this kind of gypsy osteopath coming in and out of their, um, you know, Green Ages Tour de France. and. Was it um, quite nice in a way? Because now you know how regimented the system is. You just got to pop in and out yeah. and then just be like away from the race for a few days. Yeah, it was really it was really interesting at the time. And yeah, 
um, yeah, I'm still referred to by a couple of staff members as a gypsy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that's cool. So then now you're like, okay, you're sort of back in the system. Um, and once you finish that there, you, you still had some travel for the rest of the year or you're like, I now actually think this could be good or you got pushed back into it without really knowing. Yeah, I was, I was sort of thinking, okay, I've lost a bit of the summer, but I've still got time to do this bike trip and, mm. and uh, you know, make my way to Eastern Europe. I sort of planned the route out and I thought, yeah, I could probably get, you know, get to a certain point before it gets too cold. And uh, I finished the tour and about a week later, I got a call from, from Neil Stevens, from Stevo, and he said, oh, mate, you know, what are you doing in August and September? I'm thinking, oh shit, okay. Well done. <laughs> well done. And I said, okay, yeah. He said, oh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you back for the Vuelta and you know, the guys are really happy and, and really good feedback from, from your work at the tour. So I said, yeah, okay, that'd be great. And I'm thinking, okay, backpack a little bit of cash now. And, yeah. and, uh, and uh, I really enjoyed the, the team dynamic and, and the culture of the, of the team. So I was um, pretty excited to come back and do the Vuelta. And, so that was another four weeks, four weeks on the road and getting to, to know everybody and obviously a different group of riders at that point as well. Um, and uh, I finished the Vuelta and I'm thinking, geez, I'm, I'm sort of running out of time to do this trip. I was on that for Vuelta, I yeah, remember yeah, it now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, got to the end of the Vuelta and, and, and Whitey asked me, <laughs> What are you doing for the world? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the dream. People listening yeah. to this just going, bullshit. Yeah. yeah, like this is a, yeah, one after the other. Yeah. Yeah, and so at this point, I'm starting to think, you know, I'm actually really enjoying this working environment. And, and you know, when I left my practice, I was pretty done with osteo, to be honest. I'd sort of burnt myself out in private practice. It, this was a completely unique environment and, and, and somewhere I could see myself getting back into and obviously having the background there, you know, through my uni days and, and working with some of the smaller teams in Australia. So, um, and seeing really that this is quite a unique culture that the team had at the time. And, and um, yeah, so by the time I finished the, the Worlds, I was really, you know, I put my hand up for the next year to say, okay, I want to come back and be involved with this team next year. So, um, did you have to push hard there or was it already approached to you? Did you just go, hey, I, yeah. is there a spot open? There was certainly staff. Uh, management talking about bringing me back on for 2014 but I, I did have to push for it I did have to really put myself out there with with Shane Bannon and and to say what I could bring to the team and also convince the kind of um, the head doctor at the time that you know I was going to be good for the job um, I remember Matt Wilson talking to me at the Vuelta saying you know would you you know we'd love to have you on board next year would you you know, would you move to Monaco and, and sort of work with the guys there they had a lot of the higher profile riders and up and coming guys um, you know based in Monaco so my brother was there, Matt Goss, uh, Bling was mm -hmm. there, and I think Caleb was maybe starting the next year mm -hmm. in 2014. So they were pretty keen to have some support there. And actually, I was straight up with them. I said, "Look, I'm not, I'm not keen to be based in Monaco again, and, and I don't particularly want to be attached exclusively with with my brother." And um, I, you know, made good friends with with Dan Jones at the time, and, and a lot of the riders that were based in Girona. So I said, "Look, I think if I'm going to settle myself in Europe, it'll be in Girona." So. Mm. Uh, in the end, they were okay with that, and, and in 20, probably by the end of that year, I had an offer for some part-time, some days, essentially contract yeah, work. Because explain to everyone out there, it's not as simple as, oh, you're really good, let's just put you in the team, because all the team rosters are, are chocked, mm -hmm. and a lot of people want to get in the teams, and mm -hmm. it's a bit like, it's a bit different to being a writer, because you sort of, your time runs out. You get older, you know, you have a long career, it's 10, 15 years, most guys have a career, what, five to eight years whatever it is so it's a changeover with cyclists when you get become staff member you don't really lose your form you know you can and you get ingrained in the system so there's not a lot of positions changing over the years is there and it's it's a little bit like a culture once you get in you're sort of in you get your nails stuck in 
and it's difficult to break in. So, it, like I'm trying to say, it's not wasn't as simple as going, "Hey, Whitey, you like me? Mm. Just put me in the team." Yeah, I mean, they had there were staff on the team at the time, and it's you know, as you said, it's a, it's very much a one in one out sort of mm. situation with staffing. So. You really have to, to kind of find the right moment with either a new team that are looking for staff uh, or a smaller team that's maybe growing and looking for additional staff. So who got axed for you then? Well, they were building <laughs> they were building the staff at the time. So they were a little bit understaffed in terms of the physio and osteo department. Yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it just worked out for me that in 2014, I was the kind of the extra extra yeah. member of the staff. And, and at, at the end of 2014, um, the full-time physio we had moved on and I was offered a, a full-time spot from there so yeah um, it is very much like that and it's it's it can be really difficult then for a lot of guys to, to get in because I think that's something people don't understand on the outside it's not just like going for a new job or maybe it is like that in in normal work too is that you know people really do hang around and get in and they get a really good culture so you've got to wait for that opportunity <coughs> let's just talk about a day-to-day you know because you know day-to-day in a practice is very different to day-to-day on the road. Um, and that can be, what I mean by that, I want you to run us through a day-to-day, but also the staff. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not just going to work at 9 a.m. dealing with, you know, whoever you work with, not dealing with, but working with the staff member. And, hey, see you, mate, see you tomorrow, have a good night, have fun with the family. It's like, see you at dinner in half an hour, and I'll see you back in the room, because yeah. we're actually sharing a room for the next three weeks. So tell me what it's like, first of all, day-to-day what your job is and also that whole dynamic of working on a team environment yeah it's it's quite a unique environment in that you live with your teammates 24 7 for you know four weeks at a time if you're doing a grand tour so it's really important that you fit into that the dynamic of the team and and you're you know basically a good person to live with because Mm. you know if you've got any real strong personalities there they get they get found out pretty quick and it just doesn't work in the environment that we live in you you know there's fatigue there's stress um pretty intense environment at times and, and you kind of need to have a bit of a, a cool head to be able to deal with a lot of the situations so yeah on a, on a day-to-day basis you know you're, you're getting up at you know for me I would be getting up at 6 30 thereabouts I might go for a run that's your kind of half hour window for mm. for time for yourself in that environment so try and get up and do some exercise um, you know stuff generally eat together in the morning and then and then prepare for the day and um, my role uh, the first thing during the day would be to check on the riders particularly the guys that have had you know any soreness or injuries or, or crashes from the day before check on them before we leave the hotel um, I'd often leave my table set up if I need to do a bit of work before we get on the bus uh, once we get to the the start of the race I would I would typically you know spend some time on the bus and if I need to do some taping or some some strapping with the guys mm-hmm. be available for that um, then it's a bit of a mixed role. I might be going to a bottle point or a feed zone, uh, maybe directly to the finish. But yeah, more often than not, than not, I'm stuck on the side of a hill, waiting for you guys to come past to give some bottles, and then uh, and then uh, footing it to the finish. So mm. um, yeah, from from there we obviously have the transfer to the hotel, and and then it's hands on for a couple of hours before dinner. So long days, you know. Long you... days, yeah, yeah. You know, if you think, you know, very often I'm treating guys after dinner as well, and it might be kind of finishing dinner at you know 10 o'clock or even going to dinner at 10 o'clock sometimes mm. um, and depending on the demand you might just kind of have a quick feed and go back to your room to keep treating so yeah you might kind of clock off at 11 11 o'clock some nights and, and then do all little bit of paperwork in between to sort of keep up the notes of the riders or yeah, whatever exactly yeah. yeah you're trying to fit that in during the day as well if you're you know at a bottle point and you've got you know an hour or so before the race is coming along to, mm. to kind of make the most of those opportunities yeah so actually does the you know the, the paper degree actually mean a whole lot at the end of the day you know you're 
um, trainers and osseo. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, what I hear here is you've got to be a bit of adaptable. You've got to be a sort of a jack of all trades as well. Your your skill is definitely very important, mm-hmm. but it's being able to adapt and being able to you know evolve with what is necessary on the job, but not forgetting what your actual skill is, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're. You're employed because of the skill set you have, the qualification you have, but that's one That's one very small part of the role. You know, if you look at the time that you have um, to get riders on a treatment table, it's maybe two or three hours a day. Mm. Uh, you know, the other 19, 20 hours are going to be, you know, filled with other sort of mundane duties and, and the kind of, um, yeah, the day-to-day routine of, of being on a cycling team. So, um, yeah, you do need that skill set. They're not going to take somebody on board if they're not qualified, but um, it is a small part of the role. Mm. Is it something you enjoy? I do. I love it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I've been been involved with, you know, from 2013, um, living in Europe and, and living that lifestyle now for, for nine or 10 years. So, yeah, I do love mm. it. And, um, yeah, looking forward to continuing in it. Speaking of living in Europe and living in that Girona, as you call it, well, Girona, not as you call it, Girona, mm-hmm. um, the cycling environment, what's it really like living in this sort of consumed cycling town? Because at the end of the day, I know this too, is... We end up hanging out with the, the same sort of crew. You've been able to get yourself a bit more involved with the um, local sort of culture and you know community because of you know your kids are now going to the school there, mm-hmm. um, and you just there's not that need to go out training every day with another rider or whatever. So you've been able to sort of immerse yourself a bit more than say I was. But how have you found that over there? Um, because it is again, it's ever evolving. Like I've left now. Mm-hmm there's going to be more guys leaving in the next few years there's going to be more new guys coming how have you found that for lifestyle you're married to it you know you've got a dutch wife you're living in spain mm-hmm. you're australian and there's guys coming and going it's quite a complex life it's not as maybe it's painted up as this beautiful picture from people over in australia or wherever they are thinking oh this lifestyle in spain but it's pretty complex and it's like there's no family there as well paint the picture for everyone out there what that life is like yeah, it, it can be can be hard at times. You're obviously, you know, my wife's family are in Holland. That's a, at least a couple of hour flight away, and my parents are 24 hours. That's been the hardest thing to be away from from family, um, particularly the last couple of years where nobody's been able to travel. But it's it's um, when I moved to to Drona in 2014, I, I kind of made the commitment that you know if I was going to commit myself to to the role and, and the job, I was going to really try and settle in. So mm. I, I made the effort to learn Spanish at the time. Uh, we very quickly found, you know, a house that we wanted to live in and, uh, and you know, get the veggie garden and just kind of try and create a bit of that int- Australian kind of environment um, in, in where we live. And we've got a really good group of friends over there, mm. so we have that support. And, you know, for our kids now, they're, they're the aunties and uncles mm. around us and, and really trying to create that, um, you know, that familiar environment that I grew up with and, and, um, and to give that to our kids. But it, it's a difficult one because it's, it's a real um, changing um, environment. You've got, as you said, people come into Girona for a couple of years and you make good friends and then they move on and then you make some new friends. Mm. And it's not like your typical kind of, what like where we grew up where you mm. you know you, you've got your friends and you grow right through school with them and and um you know it's a real dynamic environment mm. and obviously there's something you're really enjoying at the moment tell me a little bit about dealing with uh, us cyclists now you know the the prima donnas you know the weird things we do we're coming in it's a bit of a pressure cooker situation and you've got to have a bit of a cool head and you're one of the best guys that i know very calm cool and collected I think that's sort of a trait you need for your type of job, um, especially on the Grand Tours. Talking about the tours now, is that 
you got to deal with us at the end of the stages. Um, emotional guys, you got to you know get the put the old um, psychotherapist sort of hat on when you get on the massage table. Yeah, and then you know separate that too when you see us back in town as well. Um, be mates with us as well. It's a really difficult dynamic mm-hmm. working with these pro sportsmen sort of almost twenty four hours a day. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's an interesting one because you know there's times when you in terms of screening riders at the end of a day or just basically coming onto the bus and mm. and a lot of the time I you know don't know who won or lost the race and, and getting getting a feel for um, the atmosphere on the bus is, a, is can be a tricky one so you mm. get on the bus and if everyone's up and about you're like all right did we get a result what's going on here if everyone's sort of moping around or you know um, so you sort of have to scope that out and be a little bit sensitive to it and and I've kind of taken the the tact of win, lose or draw, just keep quite neutral in it all. And, you know, some, di- some, some days you might get a good result, but, you know, there can still be shit going on in the bus. Yeah. Somebody's, somebody's had a shocking day and you can't be all, all up and about if somebody's had, you know, been out the arse all day and, and just struggling to make time cut because it yeah. hasn't been a great day for them. Yeah. Um, so take each guy as an individual and not just assume that because, <laughs> if, you know, you've had a good day or one guy's had a good day that it's been that way across the board. So, yeah. um, But it's, it's interesting because it's a real mix between my personal life and my professional life you're right Mm. and I I need to kind of find that switch when I'm in the working environment you know you're not my mate you're my teammate Mm. you know you're not having preferences of okay oh Mitch is my mate so I'm going to get him on the table first you really have to prioritize the team in that environment Mm. and and um, yeah know when to switch on and switch off from a from a work point of view for sure what about back on the massage table you know Mm. I can speak personally about this it is a nice moment Um, and I've heard about this between the mechanics and the well, I'm not necessarily between the mechanics and the Swan Years, but definitely between the, the Swan Years, the guys who get to go to the hotels and the other, because how it works is, from what I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, it's split between the staff members that go on the bus, go to the finish, the feed zones, and go to the hotel. You go to the hotel, you don't see any riders, um, and you, you're sort of doing that work, and the mechanics don't really get much interaction with the riders at all either. So... It is a sort-out thing, weirdly. As a writer, you sort of think, well, what do you want to talk to me for? But it's nice to hear us debriefing about the day um, or talking stuff or, you know, just getting in on the know about the race or you hear it firsthand from the writers. Is that something you like, being on the table, hearing all that, I would say, not goss, but sort of race gossip and what's going on and the nitty-gritty and this guy chopped me up and I hate that guy and all this sort of stuff. Is that a nice part of the day or... I don't know, is that yeah, not so for you? It's certainly a like an exclusive access to get the inside, you know, scoop on what's happened during the day. But um, I try and leave it up to the rider. If they want to talk about the day and, and debrief it and kind of offload all the sort of shit that's gone on, then then that's up to them and you know, I'll engage in that conversation. But if they're too tired to talk, I'm happy to let them kind of chill out on the table and just get a treatment and, and uh, you know, talk about something other than cycling. Mm. And, and very often that's the case. We kind of put the cycling aside for a, for a little while and talk about some, you know, normal things. Mm. Um, but it just depends on, on the rider as well. Some guys like to to really offload and, and that's part of part of the treatment, actually talking about, you know, all the stuff that went on for the day and, and, and a good way to kind of unwind and, and really kind of finish the day, if you like, before they can move on to the next one. Do you ever see yourself as a bit of a person who can give them that helpful advice? Do you know, they feel like they, do you, do you feel like they're leaning towards you um, like, you know, looking for that answer or looking for that sort of advice or, you know, do you feel that sort of need to or you just let it just wash over you and like, yeah, mate, good on you, you'd be right. 
I think that's part of the role as a, as mm. a therapist, as an osteopath at the end of the day. There's mm. the kind of the, the psychological component to a, to a therapy and, and um, you know, you're a, not a qualified psychologist, obviously, but you, you're trained to listen to people and, and to know, um, you know, when to give some advice and when to just, you know, ask them for their, what they would do in that situation mm. and, and, you know, let, let them kind of talk out their own issues. But certainly in the stressful environment, in, in a racing environment, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of mental... Um, challenges along the way and, and as you would know over particularly a grand tour over four weeks when the fatigue starts to set in you, you're starting to the immune system starting to to get run down mm. and um, you know you're just trying to get through day to day so yeah mm. that's certainly a big part of the role I would say when you're treating somebody. Tell me about a little bit about the difference between treating um, a sort of a local person you know an everyday cyclist or just an everyday person living their life doing a nine to five job opposed to treating on the road professional cyclists professional sportsmen really uh, what i've sort of gathered either talking to you or just other sort of physio or you know osseos is that there's more of a need for a professional this might sound very obvious and more of a need for a professional athlete to get better what do i need to do andy what's wrong my, my legs thing tell me what i need to do and i'll do it tomorrow whereas i get the feeling from um joe blow is like well, i'll see you next week mate I'll see it, you know, nine next week. I can't be bothered. I'd rather you just treat me. Is that, a, you know, generalisation? Yeah, generally speaking, I'd say that's the case. You, when you when you've got a professional athlete on the table, they're really they're really involved in the process of, of mm. what they need to do. You know, what's the quickest way they can recover? Um, and it can be it can be they can be quite demanding in a way. Like, mm. okay, we're doing that treatment. Will I be okay now? Or if I do this stretch? you know, twice as many times as you told me, well, I get better twice as fast, <laughs> you know, this sort of thing. So you have to kind of gauge the, um, gauge the individual and work out, you know, if somebody's going to do a stretch twice as many times as what you're going to tell them to, then you tell, to tell them half, half as many <laughs> and, and find that balance. But um, yeah, you're, you're kind of general patient in a, in a private practice um, can be like that or they can be completely, you know, um, passive in, in the treatment and just expect you to kind of fix them and, and not be engaged in doing anything outside mm. of the treatment environment but in most cases an athlete will be really involved in that process and wanting to know everything they can do to kind of get better quicker so that's that's one of the reasons I enjoy working mm. with with athletes so much because they're, they're so committed to to their recovery and and sort of taking some ownership in, in the injury mm. as well which I think is really important. I guess a demanding um, side of it yes I can see the annoying side of it but it also makes you lift as well you know, like, oh, God, this guy's on me. You know, okay, mate. Yeah, okay, let's yeah. do it. Let's do it. You know, like, yeah. they're really demanding from you. When someone doesn't demand that from you, like, yeah, right. See you next week, mate. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you want to be better too. 100%. Yeah. Noise the hell out of you, but yeah. <laughs> yeah you're like, oh, Christ. Okay, let's talk about nutrition. Let's talk about <laughs> this and sleep and, and, and yeah, resting when you need to. And that's a big part of it as well. Just sometimes it's a matter of just switching off and letting the body recover and, and, and something that a lot of athletes struggle to do because they think as soon as they're you know they're resting they're losing fitness and mm. um, that can sometimes be a bit of a, a challenge in terms of finding that balance between recovery and and, and you know kind of training side of things. Mm. Oh, I've got a couple of questions left. One thing I want to know is is there someone out there listening if they haven't picked it up already from all this sort of stuff about your story? Is there a typical sort of job line, if you're sitting here now, about to go to uni, I want to be in the world tour as a trained medical staff, let's mm -hmm. just put that umbrella out there, whether mm -hmm. that be whatever it is, physio, osseo, chiro, mm -hmm. 
what do, what would your advice be now for your, yourself going back? And you, I, I know you didn't want to go there in the beginning, but someone listening going, you know what? I really want to be there. How mm-hmm. do you do it? You know? Yeah. Uh, I'd say you need to put yourself out there at a, at a local level initially. Get involved with a local cycling club. You know, it's almost a prerequisite that you do uh, cycle yourself. You have an understanding of the, of the sport and the challenges involved in cycling. Um, put your hands up to, to volunteer to help out if, if you've got a local athlete that's going mm. to a state championships or a local race or an NRS race. See if you can volunteer and, and help them out. And that might be just, you know, like I said, doing some massage or making the bottles and doing the extra kind of work um, and, and try to make some connections from there. There's always going to be somebody involved in, in one of those races that has a contact further up and mm. further along. Um, they've got they've you know they've got some connections and, and then you've got to make the most of that and kind of put yourself out there each time and, and try and progress a little bit further in where you want to go. It might go from an NRS race NRS race to to something a bit bigger and um, yeah maybe maybe making a connection with an athlete that's you know going in the right direction and you know if you if you're good at what you do they'll want to take you with them. So um, I'd say probably start start from there and and you, you can't just put a CV in and, and try and get a job at World Tour because without you really without a recommendation or um, a connection with somebody at that level, just because of the environment that you're in, they're not going to take somebody on board that they don't know. Mm. It's, you know, as we said, you're living out of each other's um, pockets for, mm. for three or four weeks and they're not going to bring a stranger into that environment without the kind of um, recommendation from somebody on, on the inside. So now, what does the future look like for you, you know, in the coming years? Is this a job, you know, you that you see for five, ten, like I said, you can actually get in the system and you can stay in there. If you're still loving it and you're working well and it's a great it's a great job, great bunch of people, what does it look like for you now? Where are you at? Where do you see, what's your future look like, Andy? Uh, yeah, so I've, I've just changed uh, just changed this year in 2022 with, with Israel Startup Nation from, from Green Edge previously. Uh, so yeah, it's, a, it's been a change for me and, and a, you know, a new challenge and, and um, yeah, taking me out of my comfort zone after that all that time with, with one team. So um, I think the important thing for me in, in not just this position but in my career is that as long as I'm growing and as long as it remains to be exciting and challenging, then I'd like to stay. And I think if, if I'm with a team that uh, is progressing and, and, you know, helping me kind of progress on my path, then, then it's somewhere I'd like to stay. So mm. um, as long as that's the case in, in five years or ten years, I'll, I'll hopefully still be involved with the sport. Because it is an ever-involving job, and I'll ask you another question now, sorry, but it's an ever-involving job that's something you've always evolved with. Like you said, you've got some nutrition, you've got some study in nutrition, mm-hmm. you're also starting other things apart from your own um, specialty skill. Mm-hmm. It's, you, can you see it sort of evolving that way for the future and is it building up skill, skill sets for outside of it or just to make yourself uh, more, more interested in the job? Yeah, I think it's really important to be, to be um, versatile in your role and, and over the years I've seen um, not necessarily gaps but areas where I could see there's, there's potential to help riders in, improve their performance. Um, improve in, in how I treat and, and the advice I give to riders. So the kind of extra training and, and study professional development I've done over the last 10 years has really all lent towards um, an athlete focus um, and, and trying to build my, my career and to stay in the sport. And, and if you create um, 
a skill set where you are really uh, versatile, then then you know they can use you for multiple mm. things. And, and I've you know started heading down the strength and conditioning line a lot more mm. recently, and, and I've I've got much more of a role in that now with with Israel, with uh, with the setup in Girona and the riders that are based there. So helping them through the preseason, then also trying to maintain some of that strength work through the year as well. So mm. um, it's also you know an, an interest area for me mm. and an area that I like to keep learning and, and progressing and. Um, I think that's really important in any industry, really. Cool. So, is it actually what it's all cracked up to be? Because there's guys sitting wherever they are listening to this and go, hang on, I'm, you know, I'm a bloody good you know, physio. That sounds pretty good. Is it actually what it's cracked up to be? You know, I know, yes, in a whole general schemes, you're going to probably say yes because you're mm-hmm. working in it. Mm-hmm. But... Or I could say no, just to yeah. put people off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, look, it has it. It certainly has its moments. You have your kind of wow moments at times through the year, and you know whether that's just being involved in something really unique and special um, in the team, or, or it can be a location too. You can be kind of parked up on the side of the road, you know, waiting to get bottles, and you just look around and go, "This is amazing," mm. and this is you know really special that you know I'm being paid to be here. Um, but there's you know there's a lot of times when you're kind of spending hours on end and you know you're driving from driving driving mm. yeah you know i would spend half my time on the team driving a car whether it be to a race or, or through the day it might you might spend six hours a day in the car and um you know i'd had a 15 hour road trip to get to the start of the tour de france last year so it's sort of like andy what time for massage mate <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> it yeah you've gotten in the car at 5 30 and you arrive to the hotel at 8 30 at night with uh, you know about half an hour of stops and <laughs> all, right, all right you got your table set up mate <laughs> be up in two minutes mate yeah, yeah. so yeah there's um yeah what people see from the outside is is probably the highlights but there's a lot of moments where you go all right this is why i'm getting paid to do the job mm. not because of all the fun stuff Well, there we have it. Andy Gerrans, what did you think of that? Did it give you a bit more of an insight into that pathway across as a staff member, as an osteopath? Andy has a talent too. He's an awesome guy to work with, like his brother. With his hands, he's an amazing osteopath, plus just a great person to have on your team. He can just take on any task at hand. I love talking to him. I love hanging out with him. He's a good friend and also been a great guy to have on my side when I've been on those tours as well. Guys, like I said before, exciting news coming. The Life in the Peloton Cap is about to be released. The Talking Luft edition. Next week, I have got Talking Luft with Simon Gerrans. Andy's brother. Simon has been on the podcast way back in 2017. Simon was one of the first guests that I had on there. So if you haven't heard that episode, go back and have a listen to that one as well. Next week, he'll be our Talking Luft guest. Of course, I've got to say thanks to Lara behind the scenes who is making this stuff happen. Will Jones, who put this episode together. But of course, Rafa. These guys are making these podcasts come to life this year. So a massive thanks goes out to them. And of course, you guys for listening. So guys, until next week, hang in there, send in your feedback and cheers, guys. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.